Hey everybody, this is not the actual cold open. This is a bonus cold open, I guess. Uh, A couple of announcements. Uh, Over the next couple of weeks, you will hear some ads for some other podcasts that you should check out. Uh, I guess I've gotten to that point where people are interested in sponsoring the show now, so I guess that's cool. Uh, The other big announcement is that I recently published uh, my 20th book. Um, It was also... My 18th and 19th books as well. I publish multiple at once because I'm terrible at marketing myself. Um, the first book is uh, part six of the 100 stories series that I do, which a lot of those stories are featured on this podcast. So why bother buying the book? You can just keep listening to this. Uh, the other one's a parody cookbook. The other one uh, is, I assume, the first person role of a serial killer. It is not a manifesto or a confession, but I can understand why you would think that if you read it. But if we're being honest, you're not going to read it. No one reads the stuff that I write, and I get it. It's probably not that great, just like this podcast. All right? This got kind of depressing really fast. So uh, here's the actual show. Terrorism, it's not fun. Right? It's not something that should be celebrated. Uh, It's not something that should be encouraged. Uh, In fact, it's pretty stupid to get so riled up because someone has different religious beliefs than you or different political beliefs than you that you think that it's totally necessary to go blow up that group of people or go shoot all of those people. It's pretty stupid, right? You have to be a pretty dumb person to think that. And unfortunately, there's a lot of really dumb people in the world. Um... Now, look, uh, part of me wanted to put this episode out on the week of 9-11, but I didn't, all right, because I have respect. I don't know who that respect is for, but I have it. So that's why it's this week on Our Weird World. Our Weird World. Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson, and this week... We are looking at some terrible terrorists, and when I say the word terrible, uh, I don't mean necessarily that these were terrible people. I mean, they were. That's very much a given, but I'm talking more about that they were just bad at doing the one thing that they were supposed to do, and that's pretty funny to me. And so while terrorism, you know, shouldn't be celebrated or encouraged or anything, I absolutely think that... You that terrorists should be shamed and made fun of, especially when they screw up. All right. So we're going to look at five stories today. Uh, We're going to look at the stories of Omer Tokat and Darren Barrow. And then uh, we are also looking at uh, failed attacks on the Thomas Jefferson Cultural Center, uh, the USS The Sullivans and the Glasgow Airport. Uh, Let's get ready to make fun of some very silly people. It's story time. We start actually back in 1942 with the Russians, obviously, uh, who during this time had already been making a living by sending spies to assassinate people that they didn't like. 
1942, they recruited a Macedonian college student named Omer Tokat to go to Ankara in Turkey and assassinate Franz von Papen, uh, the Nazi ambassador to Turkey. Uh, the Russians, being experts at having you know backup plans, knew that a young, easily frightened student could change his mind, back out of the mission, and confess to the plot at the first sign that something went wrong. Um, and that would, of course, ruin the relationship that Russia and Germany had at the time and would cause more issues than just a simple assassination would make between the two. So to fix that problem, the Russians gave Tokat a device that upon activation would release a smokescreen and help him escape once he made the kill. Super cool spy stuff. All right. So on the morning of February 24th, uh, Franz von Papen, I love how I, I just love saying it that way, uh, walked from his apartment in uh, Ankara, Ankara and uh, was going to the German embassy to do whatever ambassadors do there. Um, and Takat, who had been sta- uh, staking him out, sensing that this was his best opportunity to do it, uh, started following close behind him. And Tokat nervously waited for the right moment, and as nervous assassins tend to do, he then just proceeded to mess the whole thing up. So what happened was Tokat pulled the trigger on his gun and the pin for the smokescreen at the same time, which was the one thing that he absolutely was not supposed to do. You know, so like he's sitting there in the meeting with the Germans like, okay, Omer, here's what you should do. You are going to assassinate Franz von Papen. You're going to pull the trigger on the gun very much like you do. And then after, and I cannot stress this enough, after you pull the trigger on the gun, then you release the pin for the smokescreen. You you do not do them at the same time. Please listen, Omer. Do not do it at the same time. You cannot. Well, guess what he did? He did it at the exact same time. And what happened was just a humongously big, I don't know why I said it like that, just a gigantic explosion rang out along the boulevard. And the diplomats who were walking with Von Papen were knocked to the ground. And Tokat, on the other hand, was completely vaporized. (laughs) Like, dude was gone. Uh, The only things that were left of him was uh, his foot, a chunk of his forehead, and his penis in a nearby tree. I'm not even making that up. His wiener landed (laughs) in a tree. Other than his foot and his forehead, the rest of him completely disappeared. Um, Von Papen survived the attack with nothing but a burst eardrum. And uh, two months later, four members of the Soviet Secret Service were convicted of the plot to kill him and were sent to prison. So uh, fun times. Great start to the stories. Uh, We're going to jump ahead about 50 years uh, to the early 90s at the start of the Gulf War, um, which obviously angered a lot of Muslim terrorists all over the world. And as Allied forces bombed the bejesus out of Iraq, various terror groups attempted to launch their own attacks on American properties in other countries. But after failed attacks in Indonesia and Thailand, terrorists moved on to the Philippines. And so on the January or on the night of January 19th, 1991, uh, two terrorists, Ahmed Ahmed, not making that up, his name was his first name and his last name were the same thing. Uh, Ahmed Ahmed and Saad Kahim uh, parked their car in a dark area outside of the Thomas Jefferson Cultural Center, Cultural Center in Makati in the Philippines. And the Thomas Jefferson Cultural Center acted as kind of a library on American policy and culture for the Filipino people. And so Ahmed, using all of the common sense that a person with the same first and last name could possibly possess, 
decided that that was the place he needed to bomb and began arming his bomb in the dark using only the faint glow of a lighter to aid him. Uh, Shockingly, the flame from the lighter did not prematurely detonate the explosives. I'm sure that's what you were thinking was going to happen, but that's not what happened. In fact, it's so much better. Uh, Instead, Ahmed set the timer for five minutes and then set the bomb down, but he quickly realized that something was wrong there. Um, Almost immediately... All right, if you imagine kind of a timer, a little type of alarm clock thing going on here, you set it for five minutes, you got five zero zero, right? Well, the problem was that almost immediately, uh, that timer then changed to what looked like H zero zero and then E zero zero. And before Ahmed Ahmed could realize that he had accidentally set the timer backwards rather than forwards and that he was looking at it upside down and that he had set the timer for five seconds rather than five minutes, the bomb exploded, and Ahmed was killed instantly. Uh, Meanwhile, Kahim, the other terrorist, who had been following Ahmed the entire time as a lookout for the American, uh, you know, as for, you know, to look out for American people nearby or whatever, uh, he was blasted with all of Ahmed's little bloody body bits, and as he stumbled into the street, dazed from the blast, a cab driver noticed him and drove him to the nearby Makati Medical Center. And that's when Agent Evanoff from the DSS arrived at the hospital to investigate the incident. Uh, Kahim handed him a piece of paper with the telephone number to the Iraqi embassy uh, because Kahim thought that Evanoff was a fellow terrorist rather than an investigating officer from the country he had just tried to attack. So um, rather than try to deny it, Kahim was just like, hey, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. Can you go finish the job? This is everything you need to know. And once Kahim recovered, he was sent off to prison. But uh, shockingly, he was later released as part of a prisoner exchange, which honestly, those are the kinds of guys that I'm okay with releasing, all right? Because they clearly suck at their job. If they try to get involved in another terrorist plot again, they're probably not going to, they're probably going to screw it up for everybody. So those are, I, I am okay with that prisoner exchange, 100%. Um, next story here is about the USS The Sullivans, which is the name of the ship. Uh, it's the most awkwardly named ship in the American fleet. Um, cause usually ships are named after States or just one person, but the USS, the Sullivan's was named after five brothers who died on the USS Juno when it was sunk by a Japanese submarine. Um, even stranger, there was already a USS, the Sullivan's, but the United States Navy felt it necessary to create another one because I guess, uh, you know, it's not like there was an infinite amount of names to choose from. Let's go ahead and name the ship the same thing as the other. I don't know. Or just take like five ships and name one after each brother. Like, how hard is this? Um, the second version of the Sullivan's was commissioned on April 9th, 1997 and was sent to various places along the Atlantic and the Persian Gulf. Well, in 2000, or in 2000, the Sullivan's was docked at a port in Yemen. And unbeknownst to the crew, a group of Al-Qaeda operatives watched from a distance and made plans to blow up the ship for no other reason than that's just kind of what they did. Um, After giggling at the thought of having a plan go well for once, uh, the group began piling as many explosives as they possibly could onto a life raft. And in their minds, all right, these Al-Qaeda operatives were going to drift up next to the Sullivans and detonate all of the explosives on board. The Sullivans would sink, the Americans would die, Hassan and Ahmed and Kahim and all these people, they were going to go get their virgins, virgins in heaven, and the world was going to cower in fear at the might of Al-Qaeda taking down a U.S. warship. So that's what they thought was going to happen. 
Well, once the boat had been loaded, uh, the group gave their final blessings to the lone brave terrorist as he puttered out of the marina on his way to the Sullivans. However, uh, that hopeful giddiness was squashed almost immediately when the boat just sank into the bay just a few minutes later. Uh, Somehow, in the haste to just load up as much destruction as they could onto the boat, the terrorists failed to take into account that boats can only really just hold a certain amount of weight before they lose the ability to remain buoyant. And the Sullivans left Yemen in April and returned back to America before going back to the Persian Gulf in 2002 during Operation Enduring Freedom. Um, Al-Qaeda didn't give up on its plans to blow up ships. They did actually learn from their mistakes on this one and successfully bombed the USS Cole on October 12th, 2000. So uh, Sullivan's dry run ended in failure. They did learn from this one, so good on them, I guess. But still, just like... (laughs) At what point do you not just look and be like, hey, guys, I think this is overkill. I think we have enough explosive. We need to, you know, let's keep some for later. All right. I know black market, a lot of explosives, la, 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 but <laughs> I don't know. Okay, anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm having fun with accents. Um, all right. So our next story here is of uh, Deeran Burrow. Uh, Deeran Burrow was born in 1971 in India, but his parents moved to the United Kingdom shortly after his birth. At age 20, Deeran converted to Islam, and two years later he visited Pakistan, where he participated in various campaigns against Indian forces, which was his own people, in Kashmir. Uh, By the early 2000s, Burrow was a full-fledged member of Al-Qaeda and was super enthusiastic about killing people for absolutely no reason. Uh, in 2000, Barreau entered America on a student visa, but didn't bother attending any schools. Uh, instead, he scouted several different locations as possible targets for terrorism. Uh, the next year, he returned to the UK and started formulating his plan. Um, and after more than three years of careful planning, Dude finally had his masterpiece. This elaborate three-part plan that was going to bring the Western world to its knees. All right? And luckily, we know what that plan was. All right, and I'm going to share that plan with you right now. All right. Stage one was the Gas Lemos project. Right. And here's what was going to happen. Barreau was going to rent three stretch limousines, fill them with as much propane as he possibly could without looking too suspicious, and then park them inside parking decks. Uh, he would then detonate the tanks, which would cause the buildings to collapse. And his initial targets were the Prudential Building in New Jersey, the International Monetary Fund headquarters in Washington, D.C., and both the Citigroup building and the New York Stock Exchange in New York City, right? So, all right, look, probably not the grandest plan of all, all right? Look, propane tanks, when they explode, make a big boom. I I don't know if a limousine full of propane tanks is going to bring down an entire skyscraper, but look, dude was ambitious. Got to give him credit for it, right? So stage two was called Radioactive Children. And what Barreau was going to do was he was going to acquire as many smoke detectors as humanly possible and mine them for the americium oxide, which was a radio, which is a radioactive substance in everyone's smoke detectors. And he would then ignite that material, release the radiation into the air and poison everyone around. All right. So now we're getting radioactive. All right. This seems pretty smart here. Uh, in stage three, which didn't have a name, but was actually pretty sensible. Uh, Barreau was going to figure out a way to detonate a bomb along one of the London underground lines that ran beneath the river Thames. And the explosion in his mind would blow a hole in the tunnel, flood it, kill a ton of people. All right. Seems logical. 
But uh, as with most terrorist plots, all right, Burrow had a lot of obstacles, all right? And the first one was that stage one was already out of the question, all right? (laughs) Because he was back in the UK without any way of getting back to the United States, all right? His visas had expired. He wasn't going to be able to get another one. So instead, he changed his targets to just various hotels around London to carry out those limousine attacks. The second problem, though, was that Barreau had no money to do this. He had no money to buy any of the supplies. Um, he, he had a day job as an airline ticket agent, which isn't exactly the most lucrative career. Uh, he barely had enough money to live his day-to-day life, let alone rent one limousine or pay for multiple tanks of propane or drain the inventory of smoke detectors at a local hardware shop. All right. And despite being in Al Qaeda, like he wasn't on the leadership committee or anything, and he wasn't deep enough in yet where he could just get funding from them to do it. All right. He wasn't close enough with anybody where he could be like, Hey guys, I need to, I need to get, uh, get a lot of money for my new terrorist plot, my terrorist attack. I'm going to do one. All right. Do you guys fund that? Can I get some crowdfunding going? Anyway, um, the third problem, and this is likely the biggest one, is that Burrow had absolutely no idea how to create a bomb. Right? He thought that simply throwing a lit match at a barrel of propane would ignite it. And like, sure, somehow he could have acquired a gun and hoped to get lucky that the heat and sparks from a bullet entering the tank would have ignited it. But I mean, that's giving him too much credit. All right, propane tanks are pretty solid. Uh, the fourth problem was that modern modern safety regulations really limit the amount of radioactive materials that any one product can contain. And so even if by some stroke of luck, Barreau had managed to obtain 10,000 smoke detectors, the amount of radiation that all 10,000 of those smoke detectors contained still would not have been enough to do any harm to anybody whatsoever. He would have also needed a way to ignite the americium oxide, which, again, he had no idea how to do. The fifth and final problem, and like there are more, believe it or not, uh, was that, thank you, dog, uh, the Burroughs' lack of knowledge that London authorities had prepared for this sort of attack by reinforcing the underwater tunnel with layers upon layers of concrete, right? London, pretty smart. They knew, pe- like, you build a huge underground tunnel in one of the most influential cities in the world, like, people are going to want to attack it. And so they reinforced the hell out of this thing. So many layers of concrete, and Burrow had no idea. <laughs> like, He's just over there thinking like, well, it's probably just, it's probably just a couple inches, you know, I, that's all you need to keep the water out there. So I can blow it up, make a boom. Um, it's such a pandering accent for Middle Eastern people. Um, I don't care. Um, so, and, and look, and the reason they did this, not just for terrorists, but like also like if a car crashed and exploded or a ship, you know, banged into the tunnel, like the tunnel would still be able to survive that big of an impact without putting people in danger. All right. Also, Burrow would have needed a humongous bomb to do any kind of damage to the tunnel, which as you know, by now was something he did not have and he didn't know how to make it. He didn't know how to obtain it. And because he really wasn't the smartest terrorist, he wasn't really the most secretive about it. Uh, British intelligence quickly picked him up and placed him under surveillance, and he was arrested on August 3rd, 2004, while he waited in line to get his hair cut at a barbershop in London. Uh, along with him, uh, British police arrested seven others who were actually helping Burrow formulate his plan, which means there were at least seven other terrorists who had no idea how terrorism actually worked. Uh, Barreau pled guilty to conspiracy to murder and was sentenced to life in prison. Uh, however, the judge recommended that he only serve a minimum of 40 years, even though his plans were quote unquote viable, uh, which I mean, that's a stretch. 
Uh, in July 2007, uh, Barreau in jail had boiling water poured onto his back by other inmates because he's stupid and definitely deserved it. Uh, when he tried to fight back, another in, in, another inmate poured boiling oil on his head, uh, which is probably a lot worse. Uh, both of those attacks likely took way less planning than Burroughs' giant terrorist plot, but they were wildly more successful. And as far as I know, he is still in prison today. Obviously, won't get out uh, until, I don't know, probably like 2044, maybe. Let's hope not. Um, our final story... Uh, comes in 2007 when on June 29th, Bilal Abdullah, who was a doctor, and Kafil Ahmed, an engineer, parked two cars filled with gas tanks on the streets of London. Uh, unfortunately for those two terrorists, uh, the tanks didn't explode because they didn't include any sort of oxidizer in the car to detonate the tanks, which honestly, I mean, that's a small detail that you would expect an engineer to know and take account of, but no, they just like, they left... <laughs> They just parked the cars full of gas tanks and then just walked off like, yeah, they'll explode at some point. May probably. Yeah, that's that's how it works, right? No. Um, one of the cars was uh, even actually towed because it was illegally parked. So it uh, would not have worked regardless. Well, the next day, uh, Abdullah and Ahmed tried again, this time in Glasgow, Scotland. And their plan was to drive to the terminal at Glasgow International Airport and just unleash all kinds of terror. All right. And... They grabbed a dark green Jeep, Jeep, Jeep Cherokee, God, filled it up with more gas tanks. I don't know where they're getting all these gas tanks from, but they got them. And in their minds, once their car collided with the wall, the tanks would explode and then they would ascend up into Muslim heaven and just a magnificent ball of glory. All right. But again, as the pattern goes here, uh, Abdullah and Ahmed just had not done their research. All right. Uh, because the terminal doors at Glasgow International Airport were guarded by security bollards. And I mean, you know, you've seen them. It's those generally those concrete or metal posts that line sidewalks in front of like very important buildings. They're usually like, you know, a foot apart, I guess. Um, because, and, and those things are designed to keep vehicles from doing exactly what Abdullah and Ahmed were trying to do with a vehicle. And they saw this, realized it was kind of a minor setback, but they were really committed to this bit at this point. And so they slammed their Jeep into the bollards at all of 30 miles per hour. Uh, surprisingly though, it was enough of an impact to detonate the gas tanks inside the Jeep. The problem was that it did not kill the terrorists immediately. Um, Abdullah leapt from the car and just started throwing haymakers, presumably because he did not think to bring guns. They didn't bring guns. Right. They thought the car was just going to hit the wall, explode, and they were not going to have to do anything else. Instead, they hit the bollards. The car exploded. They didn't die. So now they've got to like improvise from here on out. So Abdullah is just swinging on fire, shouting Allah, Allah, just, I mean, just hitting nothing but air. All right. Uh, Ahmed, who was also covered in flames, ran into the terminal where he was promptly kicked in the balls by John Smeaton, an airport employee. I don't know why he kicked him right in the balls, right? Typically, you know, you just, maybe you tackle him, maybe you push him aside. But I don't know. If I see, if I see someone running at me and they are on fire, my first thought, my second and third thought is not going to be, hey, I need to kick this dude in the balls. 
but that is what John Smeaton did. And he kicked, he kicked Ahmed so hard that he actually tore a tendon in his foot doing it. Uh, and even more for his bravery and accuracy, Smeaton was awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal. I don't know what that is, but it sounds pretty important. Um, as you, as you might expect, uh, Ahmed actually died from his injuries, his burns, and probably his just ruptured testicles. Uh, Ahmed or uh, Abdullah actually survived and was arrested and sentenced to life in prison. And that concludes today's stories. All right. Another round of stories in the books there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think after after learning about these stories, it makes a coordinated terrorist attack. I think that a little bit more impressive to me. Um, you know, nine eleven especially just incredibly coordinated, uh, a miracle of of human teamwork and 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 engineering. I think and so on, on that side, terribly sad. Don't get me wrong, but kind of impressive when you think about the scale that it required to pull that off especially when you see like how difficult it actually is to coordinate a terrorist attack and maybe it's because these people were really stupid to begin with and we're never gonna be successful anyway but let us now see what we learned today What did we learn? Number one, when you are given specific instructions for how to carry out a terrorist attack, you should probably follow them, all right? If your one job is to not pull the trigger and pull the pin at the same time, don't do it, right? Trigger first, then pin. Granted, that smokescreen probably wasn't going to work in the first place, but it's at least worth the effort to try to do it right the first time, all right? Uh, Number two, when you're arming a bomb, make sure that, it is not upside down because if you set the timer for five minutes and you set it upside down, it's going to be five seconds and you're not going to get away in time. Right. Uh, and number three, if you're going to plan a terrorist attack, just I, make sure you know, or at least have the resources at your disposal to actually create the explosives and detonate them properly. Uh, because you're going to look really silly if you have all the materials for making a bomb and then you think you made a bomb, and then nothing happens. You'd, you'd look you look real dumb. Next week on Our Weird World, we're going to look at another dumb group of people, and that is politicians. Wow, politicians are pretty stupid sometimes. Hey, here you go. I don't know why I'm talking like this. Anyway, uh... We're going to look at the stories of the Indiana Pie Bill, the Hippopotamus Ranch Plan, and the story of Byron Low Tax Looper. Uh, I hate politics with a fiery passion, and I'm going to take great pride in talking about how ridiculously stupid some of these political decisions were. So get ready to enjoy that. Thank you all for listening. Uh, keep telling all your friends, and yeah, let's keep it weird. 